Well, dear friends, may I underline the welcome given earlier and thank you all very much indeed for coming to the conference and supporting it today. It's a great privilege to be part of this conference and to speak to you now. And we trust and pray that as we hear the messages given, the Lord will establish us in the truth and the right ways of the Lord, and that we shall be graciously helped to serve our generation by the will of God. I just want to read one verse of scripture to you from 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32. And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. This verse comes in a chapter that records a crucial period in the life of David. It lists the groups of Israelites who joined him at different times before and after the death of King Saul. And these men of Issachar were among them and they helped to make David king over all Israel. The Issacharites were noted for their wisdom. They had understanding of the times. That is, they were astute and perceptive, which is what we all must be. They could see how things were going and that now it was the right time to join David. Moreover, their wisdom was practical, to know what Israel ought to do. And that should be so with us as well, that we may know how best to serve the Lord in the times in which we live, called to the kingdom for such a time as this. David is a type of our Lord, and he is the one whose we are and whom we serve. Now, if we would understand our times, we need to appreciate present conditions, but more particularly, how we got here. You have heard in the first address about the culture in which we live and all the things that are wrong with it, and how that back to the Bible is the only cure. But how did things get as bad as they are? Well, we need to look at this and see how this new downgrade that has happened came about. There's a little bit of history here, and I'm conscious that as we go through these things, I'll be referring to things which many of you um, never saw because they happened before you were born. But nonetheless, the repercussions and the consequences of them are with us very much today. Now, the UK has a Christian heritage that is unique in all the world. It goes back to Anglo-Saxon times and King Alfred the Great in the ninth century. And he drew up an important code of laws and blended it with the Ten Commandments. And this established a basis for biblical laws, recognizing God as the ultimate lawgiver and judge. 
And this gave sanctity to the law of the land and seriousness to being citizens. Over the centuries, this characterized British society and came to its height in Victorian times. Back then, we professed to be a Christian nation and we were officially characterized by Sunday observance, hard work, thrift, honesty, moral decency, respect for others and their property, and the sanctity of life. And throughout the British Empire, in Victorian times, these principles and values stemming from the Bible were exported far and wide throughout the world. And I'm conscious that not everyone here originates from the UK or um, your uh, forebears don't, but the fact is that God raised up the United Kingdom to such a pitch of biblical Christianity, far from perfect, many things wrong, and yet overall it meant that the world was affected for good. It was said of the Victorians that they expected the day of judgment at the last day as certainly as they expected their wages at the end of the week. And when you have a conviction like that, it makes you careful how you live and the fear of God and the ultimate future. And that's healthy because the fear of the Lord is to depart from evil. But by the end of the Great War in 1918, confidence in the Bible had broken down. Theological liberalism, combined with the horrors of suffering, brought disillusionment and undermined respect for Christianity. By the end of the Second World War in 1945, Christian standards were also being questioned. It has been said that World War I undermined Christian doctrine, World War II undermined Christian morality. And this double hit meant that by the 1950s we were living on Christian capital from better days, and it was steadily running out. It only needed what happened in the next decade to use up almost all that was left. The 1960s and 1970s were the most ruinous decades in recent history. During that time, especially in the 1960s, British society, in common with other Western nations, underwent a revolution, a spiritual and moral revolution that has changed us into something almost beyond recognition compared with what we once were. But as I hope to show, this transformation has also affected evangelical and reformed churches in almost equal measure. There has been a cultural surrender to the degenerate, debased society in which we find ourselves. Now, until around the 1950s, the general belief was that our laws and values stem from our Christian history. It was not always liked. Various movements had tried to change it. 
Nevertheless, this biblical hist history and heritage was acknowledged and by and large accepted. However, by the 1960s, the ethos was violently challenged and Britain experienced a widespread mood of change. And certain causes helped bring this about. Music was a powerful factor. During the 1950s, rock and roll bands came from the USA. Bill Haley and the Comets, Elvis Presley, in the UK, the young Cliff Richard at first modelled himself on Presley. As new bands and rock developed, its music and lyrics gloried in rebellion against authority, immorality, drugs, drunkenness and even witchcraft. The pop culture of the 1960s also degenerated, illustrated by the later history of the Beatles. Now this was not just a new kind of music. Music is never neutral. It was a driven thing with a message and a purpose. David Samuel once wrote this, popular music was no longer simply a medium of light relief but a battering ram for moral and social change and it continues to be so, and has developed, of course, much further and much worse with punk, heavy metal, rap, and all the rest of it. So music was a powerful factor in changing things. The cult of the teenager was another one. Before the 50s and 60s, children growing up tended not to have a separate identity. This might seem strange. Nowadays, <clears throat> older sons and daughters were just smaller versions of their parents in dress, tastes, and lifestyle. And it was a straightforward navigation into adult life. However, rock and pop defined a new age group, the teenager, with their own music, own clothes, hairstyle, lifestyle, culture, language, and so on. And the post-war baby boom created many disgruntled young people who became this separate and distinct section of society. Now, I lived through those days. Those were heady days, and we thought it was a marvelous thing what was happening. We were emerging into our own lifestyle and identity. Looking back now, I cringe. But thirdly, broadcasting media was another one. Hugh Green was the director general of the BBC who modernised the corporation. That's a polite way of saying that he pioneered programmes that pushed the standards of taste and decency to limits never before allowed. Swearing, blasphemy, obscenity, violence, and more characterized the output of those days. And particularly effective were the satirical programs that mocked and ridiculed revered institutions of our country. Hugh Green is quoted as saying this, we are going to use this organization to change 
the way the rest of this country thinks. We want them to see stuff they don't like. We don't really care if they complain. Nothing much has changed with the BBC. Mrs Mary Whitehouse and her clean-up TV campaign, especially in the 1980s, was his bitterest critic. She once wrote, If anyone were to ask me who, above all, was responsible for the moral collapse which characterised the 60s and 70s, I would unhesitatingly name Sir Hugh Carlton Green, who was Director General of the BBC from 1960 to 1969. So music, the cult of the teenager, broadcasting media, the government of the day also is much to blame. The Labour government of the 1960s had as its Home Secretary Mr Roy Jenkins and during his office, 1965 to 67, he helped create what was called the Permissive Society. That included abolishing capital punishment for murder, abolishing theatre censorship, legalising homosexuality, relaxing the divorce laws, legalising abortion. In his book, The Abolition of Britain, Peter Hitchens accuses him of being a cultural revolutionary, largely responsible for the de decline of traditional values in Britain. And Parliament caught the new mood and the powers that be re-legislated the nation's moral laws, standards based on the Bible to a great degree. And since the last war, more than 60 pieces of Bible-based legislation have gone, touching about 400 places in Scripture. The restraints came off in open defiance of heaven. No absolutes was the cry, together with morality, is what you make it. Now every moral standard and social convention was ridiculed and it was a terrible spiral down into ungodliness and unrighteousness. Even secular commentators these days reflect upon what happened back then with regret. Charles Moore the distinguished Daily Telegraph columnist wrote, 60s liberalism swept away our shared sense of decency. And then, fifthly, the church. While there was all this dismantling of our Christian heritage, and as it was accelerating, what of the church? I mean the established church, the Church of England, which is what the media looks to for comment on these things. Far from crying out against it, it largely encouraged it. A notorious example was the Anglican Bishop of Woolwich, John A.T. Robinson. In 1961, he defended the publication of D.H. Lawrence's disgusting book, Lady Chatterley's lover. Up until then it had been banned from sale in this country. His own book in 1963 
honest to God, criticised biblical Christian values and Christian theology and caused a storm of controversy. Social liberals and theological liberals went hand in hand to change a Christian-based society into a secular and degenerate one. But what of evangelical churches and reformed churches? I suggest that despite noble exceptions, evangelicalism mirrors the story of the nation. We have been through a social revolution. And my contention is that during the same period, a comparable spiritual revolution happened in evangelical churches. The spirit of the age wormed its way into church congregations and changed their character almost beyond recognition. Now, what form has this taken? Well, I want to state the main ones and the harm they have done and then suggest a biblical remedy in each case. Number one on the list is the charismatic movement. This burst upon us in the 1960s. An important influence for this was Dennis Bennett, an Episcopal priest in Van Nuys, California. On April the 3rd, 1960, he told his congregation that he had received a baptism in the Holy Ghost. And he told his congregation that uh, this was the beginning of something big. His book, Nine O'Clock in the Morning, was his autobiography. And then in this country, Michael Harper, curate with John Stott at All Souls in London, founded the Fountain Trust and claimed that the apostolic, miraculous gifts of the Spirit had been restored. Baptism in the Spirit with tongues as evidence uh, was the great thing taught and claimed in those times. David Watson was a younger exponent of it in his church in York. And the thing spread like wildfire throughout the church denominations. And the great talk was, have you been baptized in the Holy Ghost? Have you got the gifts? Have you got signs and wonders happening in your church? And you see, what happened was this. It signaled a shift of authority from objective scripture to subjective experience and claims. And in reality, it was just like the age in which it happened. Rebellion against authority. And you've heard it from Pastor Capadon, how that it's uh, not truth, but how I feel that's the great thing. And so it was with this. Now, Michael Harper ended up a Greek Orthodox priest, an archpriest. So much for the spirit of truth in this. David Watson, at an Anglican, evangelical Anglican conference, is quoted as having said this, and it's on record. In many ways, the Reformation was one of the greatest tragedies that ever happened 
to the church. Can you believe it? Where is the spirit of truth in this? Baptism in the Holy Ghost, gifts, signs and wonders. But where is the word of God? And where is the belief of the truth and love of the truth? It's usually, in this case, the charismatic movement, not concerned with appeal to God's word, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not against this law, there is no truth in them. No, the charismatic movement at best is of the flesh and at worst is of the devil. And this was a revolution in the house of God. What the permissive society did for lifestyle outside the church, the charismatic movement did for life inside the church. And this revolution was no more biblical than the social revolution. Far from being the Holy Spirit, it was simply the spirit of the age. The charismatic movement, what's the remedy? Well, dear friends, two armed guards at the front door of every church, the Old and the New Testament. And if only that generation had appealed to God's word concerning this, instead of being so credulous and so over-impressed with all that was being claimed and going along with it, so that church after church, minister after minister, Christian society after Christian society, infiltrated by this kind of thing. There were good books, and there were some preachers who were giving right teaching to equip God's people, but by and large, it just won the day, caught us napping. And it's ever so important that we understand these things. But dear friends, we need more than sound teaching to keep to the word of God on this. We need the authentic person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. When you have the authentic, the false is seen for what it is. Orthodox doctrine about the Holy Spirit is not the whole solution. The true unction and power of the Holy Spirit is the solution. God give it to us back in these days. So the charismatic movement was one feature of this downgrade. Second is this, new worship. To begin with, it was only churches that became charismatic that had its distinctive worship styles. Other evangelical churches and reformed churches tended to carry on in their more biblical, reverent way. But then, over time, we have witnessed their worship styles changing and even in reformed churches it's succumbed to this new worship revolutionary again broken free from being biblically regulated and reverent 
Now multiple musical instruments, catchy songs, emphasis on emotions, man-centered and experience-centered celebrations are declared evidence of the spirit. Anything else needs liberating. One source of this was from America at the time, from the Jesus people, Arthur Blessett, modeled upon the hippies with their soft rock music and lyrics. Now it's gone more to hard rock and uh, worse lyrics. But you see, in reality, this new worship, what happened was this. The swinging 60s in society became the swinging worship in the church. It's not biblical. It's a cultural surrender again. Stuart Townend, whose worship songs are found in many, even sound hymn books, like uh, praise, well no, praise is not sound. New Christian hymns is sounder, but praise is worse, far worse. But influences upon his music, he said, include David Bowie, The Beatles, Bob Dylan, and Stevie Wonder. And asked in an interview on YouTube, look for it, asked for an, in an interview on YouTube, if Jesus were here, what music would he like? And he said it would be heavy metal or something that would shock us. And that is shocking. But that's the kind of thing, you see. It's the degenerate, wicked culture of this age that's come into the churches. And believers are singing songs from sources like this, supposedly for the acceptance and glory of God. So new worship then. It's not the doctrine, but it's the practice of the charismatic movement. But if the doctrine of the charismatic movement is wrong, then the practice and the worship of it must be wrong as well. But you've got this strange dichotomy in many Reformed churches today. A man who claims to be Reformed and preaches in a Reformed way in the pulpit, if there is still a pulpit, and you've got believers in the pews singing contemporary worship music from charismatic sources. But the preaching is good. But what kind of preaching is it? And how faithful is it if it does not address the worship in the pew? And how reformed is the preaching if it doesn't reform the praise that is being offered to Almighty God? And so there's a strange dichotomy which should never be tolerated. The charismatic movement and its distinct new worship has infiltrated and taken us over and you've got, got the strange sight of a reformed man in the pulpit preaching and a deformed worship going on in the pews. That is if the, if the pulpit still exists and if the pews are still there. In so many places, pulpits are removed, pews are removed and you've got the stage and you've got the open space so that it's almost like a nightclub. So the new worship. What's the remedy? New worship? Well, dear friends, real and spiritual worship. The great ingredient must be brought back. 
Psalm 89, verse 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. If that principle had been adhered to and contended for, then new worship would never have got a look in. When you have real, spiritual, God-glorifying worship, you see the other for what it is, and you avoid it like the plague. Psalm 22, verse 3. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. God comes down in worship and makes our worship his home, his throne. What a solemn and yet joyful thing that is, isn't it? You never have more of God. You never have God nearer to you than when you worship in a scriptural and right way. People say, well, it's a secondary issue. It's just a matter of taste. Is what affects the glory of God ever a secondary issue? It's a primary issue. It's a fundamental issue which must be contended for in the church today. So the charismatic movement, new worship. Thirdly, obsession with young people. The cult of the teenager, as I've said, which grew up in the 60s, that has entered the church as well. And... Uh, it tends to be in the church that young people must be given a separate identity. Now, I'm very conscious that there are young people here today, and I'm very, very glad to see them, and many more online, I'm sure. And I don't want to say anything to um, undervalue your presence and contribution in your local church, but I think you know what I'm saying. It's that in so many cases, for instance, young people have gone away to university from sound churches. They've attended the Christian Union, which is charismatic, new worship, worldly, and they've come back and they've proceeded to tell the pastor what a stuffy, old-fashioned church this is and what worship should be uh, used and uh, the things that we should be seeking and uh, young people's groups and uh, young people leading things and so on and it's given many ministers headaches and older people in the church great grief and if there's a weak leadership in the church that, that then they're accommodated and they take over and you find that the thing degenerates there's a church i heard about some while ago instead of an evening service it holds a discussion group for young people. Extraordinary, isn't it? Obsession with it. And of course, the older people, so many of them, who should know better, they say, well, if it keeps the young people, then it must be all right. Or it gets the young people in, well, then we must do it. As if that's the criteria. What has God said about this? Well, we know that young people have particular needs, and I'm thankful, the church I grew up in as a young person, I was greatly helped by many people. But at the end of the day, young people are not a special case. Uh, elderly people are more scripturally uh, a special case. 
in the love and respect and support that they need. Uh, we read in 1 John 2 verse 13, I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children because you have known the father. We're all together in this. Age shouldn't make a great difference. And so this obsession with uh, younger people and what they want and what should please and keep them is just all wrong, isn't it? So what is the solution? Well, recognizing the particular challenges that young people face today and they deserve our prayers and our getting alongside and much help. But uh, the word of God is for them as much as for anyone else. And the same Bible that helps older saints will help younger ones as well. I must move on. Entertainment evangelism. Fourthly, in keeping with the upbeat and fun culture of the days we've passed through in the 60s and onwards, methods of communicating the gospel have become revolutionized. Music bands, drama and mime. And we have heard about puppets, conjuring and even gospel clowns and gospel comedians now communicate the gospel quote one of them had the congregation rocking with laughter as the gospel of christ was communicated unquote church services resemble superficial entertainment from the world making it clear where the cue for it has come from outreach makes sinners laugh rather than under god bring them to conviction of sin godly sorrow and repentance unto salvation entertainment evangelism what is the antidote well outsiders are not to be wooed and entertained but to be convicted and converted aw tozer once said it is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a church where the only attraction is God. Well, that should be the only attraction. And if that is the case, God will do his gracious work of saving sinners. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. That's real evangelism and when people are converted they're born again have the love of the truth and really know the lord they stay in the church and become church members and are a blessing and so entertainment evangelism one more we've had the charismatic movement new worship obsession with young people entertainment evangelism loss of godliness the great loss to the church in all of this is the fear of the Lord. And the tragedy is, with the loss of the fear of the Lord, it's the loss of the Lord's presence, it's the loss of the Lord's blessing, 
It's the loss of the Lord honouring his people and his church. It's the loss to society, to sinners everywhere. It's loss, loss, loss. And with so much sin in the church, is it any wonder that God does not bless us? It is not modern worship methods that we need. It is old-fashioned repentance and return to authentic, reformed evangelicalism. Serious and faithful preaching, the cultivation of heart religion, to be able to say like Jacob, surely the Lord is in this place. And he was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Pray that God will return to us again. But we must return to God or stay with God and in his word and in the right ways that are shown us here. And God honors faithfulness, dear friends. We cannot turn the clock back to better times, but we must ensure that the church of God does not move with our decadent and degenerate times. What I have outlined is a spiritual problem and it can only have the spiritual solutions I have suggested. Times are bad, but God is good. In place of the social revolution that has blighted society and church, let there be a biblical revolution and return to the old paths of authentic evangelicalism. Spurgeon once said, we shall not adjust our Bible to the age, but before we have done with it, by God's grace, we shall adjust the age to the Bible. And that's what we must do. That's the aim of such a conference as this, to adjust things to the Bible, back to God's word, the only truth the only absolute standard, the only right and good way. May the Lord then bless us, help us to play our part in these things by his wondrous grace and for his glory. Amen.